Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of our third episode of 1922, where today we have finally reached a very important milestone. We'll be hearing from the first African-American group to record New Orleans-style jazz. Now, today's episode is going to include a lot of artists, including some that we've heard from previously. Those would be Frank Crummett, Eddie Cantor, and Billy Murray. But we'll also be hearing from three newcomers, Gallagher and Sheen, a comedy duo, Zez Comfrey, a novelty piano player, and more importantly, one of the biggest figures in early to mid-century jazz, Edward Kid Ory. Now, Kid Ory was born on Christmas Day, 1886, in a place called La Place, which is French for the place. And in particular, he was born on the Woodland Plantation. To be clear, he wasn't born on that Woodland Plantation, which Southern Comfort drinkers will know as the house from the Legacy Bottles. But to be even more clear, the word plantation should be permanently changed to slave labor camp in reference because calling up heirs of genteel days so your friend can have a basic AF wedding papers over the purpose of the plantation, which was to confine slaves to their owner's land so that they could be worked to death to the economic gain of landed whites. But I digress. In any case, Kid Ory played all over New Orleans as he was coming up in the developing jazz scene there, and he had no shortage of business plans that got him into trouble. He once figured that he could make more money for himself if he didn't have to pay out the club owner's cut of the sales, so he rented a club and played there himself. But in an ingenious move that would lead him into trouble, he also rented out the club next door and kept it empty. He was at the top of his game in New Orleans when he suddenly left in 1919 after a business deal went bad with a club owner. Ori faked that he had emphysema and blew town for parts west. In California, he and his new band would record the song we're listening to today, Ori's Creole Trombone. Ori is particularly known for what is called the tailgate style of playing, and it's called that for a cool reason. If you've ever seen a trombone, you know that trombonists fly out the slide quick and far. And so if there are any other musicians nearby, they could lose a tooth or worse. When Ori was in New Orleans, bands would compete for crowds and tips against each other by playing from moving wagons. These wagons were like musical ice cream trucks driving around for the attention that would help the bands later get gigs. And the trombone player, by nature of his far-reaching instrument, was placed near the tailgate of the wagon. That way they could throw their slide out into the air instead of into their bandmates. Tailgate style means playing trailing and filling in for the cornets and trumpets as well, so there's a double interpretation and both make sense. Before we listen to the song, there's one more piece of info on Ori that you just have to know. He was one of the few musicians who was smart with money in the 20s. When the Great Depression hit at the end of the decade, he simply quit being a musician. He bought a chicken ranch in California and he worked at the post office. He had a major career resurgence in the 40s that we'll definitely listen to later, But think of it as if Lady Gaga decided tomorrow to close up the Gaga universe and move to Wyoming to operate a ski lift in Jackson Hole. It just boggles the mind to go from playing sold-out clubs to chicken farming. Unfortunately for Zez Comfrey, he has to follow that intro with a more standard story. Comfrey was born in 1895 in Peru, Illinois, and Zez was his nickname after his middle name, Elziar. His first real name was Edward, just like Ori. Confrey went to the Chicago Musical College and was an accomplished pianist, but never found success in a performing career, electing instead to become a composer. 
By 21, he was the staff pianist at Whitmark's, a sheet music publishing company. Now, as a side note, Whitmark's invented handing out professional copies to established artists as a marketing tactic. Pre-radio, it was understandable that the most likely way for a new song to be heard was either live or in recorded performance. Giving the sheet music to performers free of charge helped drive demand by exposing people to a high-quality performance of the song. This was so successful that it became standard practice across the industry almost immediately after Whitmark started doing it. Back to Comfrey, in 1921, he wrote Kitten on the Keys, which was inspired literally by a kitten walking along the keys of his grandmother's piano. It would be his only one recorded hit, gaining popularity in 1922, but Comfrey would continue composing until his death in 1971. In the grand pantheon of comedians named Gallagher, the first one is not the one that smashed watermelons, but Ed Gallagher, one half of the comedic duo Gallagher and Sheehan. With Al Sheehan, the other half of the duo, and uncle to the Marx Brothers of all things, Gallagher would perform today's bit where two Irishmen greet each other as Mr. Gallagher and Mr. Sheehan. The song was a hit in the 1922 Ziegfeld's Follies and caused their previous employer to sue the duo for leaving them for Ziegfeld, which breached their contract. The employer said that the duo was irreplaceable and so could not leave. Gallagher and Sheehan thought it would be a great idea in court and under oath to say that their act was just mediocre and that anyone could do it. The judge agreed with them, and we'll get to decide just how irreplaceable they were today when we listen to their best effort ourselves. Since Billy Murray, Frank Crummett, Eddie Cantor, and even Burt Williams are all artists who we've already introduced in some of our previous episodes, we don't really need to give their entire history here. However, here are three things you need to know about them from our last reviews. Eddie Cantor was for the most part a less serious singer who focused his talents on entertaining the audience with his interactions and expressive face. Cantor performed in the New York vaudeville acts with Ziegfeld's Follies for 10 years at the height of the Follies' popularity. His 1920 performances earned him a 13.7 average, narrowly losing a head-to-head battle with Frank Crummett, who we'll also hear from today, in our 1920-4 episode. Worse yet, in 1921 he averaged a 12, with lackluster performances not suited for his vocal range. Billy Murray was the son of Irish immigrants and born in Philadelphia in 1877. After moving to Colorado at a young age, he became known as the Denver Nightingale. Murray became one of the most popular singers of the acoustic era, but would have trouble switching to the electric microphone in the mid-twenties, because his singing style, which he called hammering, would be too harsh for the more sensitive recording equipment of the electric era. However, he scored well in his 1920 performances and received a 16 average. Most of the time, Murray was recording popular songs of the day, and that's what he does in today's Stumbling, which we'll also hear from Frank Crummett. Frank Crummett was born in Jackson, Ohio in 1889 and would go on to write the Buckeye Battle Cry, Ohio State's Fight Song. He was a humorist and he focused on more recorded performances rather than artistic performances, but was incredibly popular for doing so. His casual stereotypes and humor were very common for the time, but have not aged well, and they generally betray an authenticity sacrifice for humor's sake. His average scores for 1920 were 13.8 improving slightly to 14 in 1921. Burt Williams was born in the Bahamas in 1874 and was one of the most popular comedians of his time, though his 1920 works earned him a 14.3 last we heard his music. Burt Williams was one of the most popular and definitely the most highly paid black comedians in American history up to this point. Unfortunately, this will be the last time that we hear from Burt Williams due to his untimely death in 1922 from pneumonia. 
His funeral service drew thousands of people, and we honor him as best we know how by keeping his memory and music alive. On that somber note, let's stop talking and let's start listening. For those of you who are listening to the podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you which includes all the music as part of the podcast, so you'll only have to press play once and everything including the music will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service or on YouTube and still want to listen along to the music, a playlist of what we're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1922-3. You don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or reach out to us on Twitter at CunningReview. That's all for Side A of Episode 1922-3. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1922-3, where we're listening to the music of Frank Crummett, Eddie Cantor, and Billy Murray, Gallagher and Sheen, Des Comfrey, and most importantly, one of the biggest figures in early to mid-century jazz, Edward Kid Ory. You're now listening to the B-side of this podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Let's waste no time and get right into these reviews because Kid Ori has waited long enough for us to get to his music. So in Ori's Creole Trombone, we have the first recording by an African-American jazz band from New Orleans. And while that seems like a lot of qualifying terms, that's a really important marker. We have seen jazz tunes recorded as early as 1917, and even those were recorded by a New Orleans band, the original Dixieland Jazz Band. But those artists were white, and it would be three years later when any black artist at all would record when Mamie Smith would be the first in 1920. To reach the era when black artists would be able to perform music that was steeped in their culture is an important mark of change. Jazz by this time was already establishing itself as an American art form, but without black artists the picture would be halved and incomplete. In this recording, we have some definitive New Orleans-style jazz, composed of an ensemble of players that create a layered sound as the different instruments play over and around one another. The musicians are clearly practiced in the style and deftly maneuver around one another without stumbling through. And the authenticity for this lyricless piece is a four. For artistic statement, the piece is also hurt by the lack of lyrical accompaniment and receives a three. In terms of innovation, you can hear Ori's trombone tailgating as it sets the stage for the coronet and clarinet to dance around in the higher registers filling in more substantially to release tension and pulling back for the horn and clarinet to jump in for a mastery and innovation score of fours. It's important to note that there is a lot of ragtime influence in this piece, especially in the piano backing, which is a bit hard to hear because of the recording quality, but it's definitely there. 
Catchiness is a 3 for a final score of 18 out of 25 points. Kitten on the Keys was a bit of a novelty song rather than a serious piece, but Comfrey's piano chops are certainly no joke and receive a 5. As he was trained in concert piano, that shouldn't be any surprise, but since this was original composition, it's even more impressive and he earns a 4 in authenticity. While I could be wrong, I believe this is the first song that we've reviewed on Cunningham's Law Review that was performed by the original composer. As we mentioned before, this song was inspired by a literal kitten walking across a piano. And if you try to picture a kitten dancing across piano keys while you listen, it's a funny image and it earns a four for artistic statement. It's a decently engaging song that innovates with impressionistic interpretation of a kitten on a piano, earning a three for catchiness and a four for innovation for a total score of 20. In Positively Mr. Gallagher, Absolutely Mr. Sheehan, individually the verses are catchy enough, but they go too far for too long and they don't develop the joke structure so the whole thing gets really grating. I feel like the only reason they stopped telling essentially knock-knock jokes to each other was because they ran out of room on the record. This was an innovative comedy bit at the time because it involved two comics calling back and forth to each other, but none of the jokes land very well today. And that's not for the usual reason in that they're all tasteless. It's just that they're not that funny by today's standards, and the kitsch of the structure is annoying in how much it pads the delivery. For the annoying delivery, Catchiness receives a 2 in an otherwise average song for a 14 out of 25. In Cantor's I Love Her, She Loves Me, his voice simply can't carry the song, and Mastery receives a 2. The song is about a man who is in love with a rich but otherwise undesirable woman, and is at the level that a song like that would make you expect, with authenticity receiving a 2, along with artistic statement. The song is catchy enough and would earn a 3 in catchiness if only for Cantor's voice, which breaks and doesn't help. The song does one thing, and that's to once again bring up the most erotic piece of furniture in the arsenal of any 1920s artist, the extremely risque, and only suited for lasciviousness, Morris Chair. Finishing with an innovation score of 2, the song earns a total score of 10. We'll compare the Billy Murray and Frank Crummett versions of Stumbling directly to one another since they are nearly identical. First, Billy Murray's version is much clearer and incorporates a sense that he's falling and stumbling around as he sings the chorus with some real punchy lyrical updates. The song is about a silly scenario where a man doesn't know how to dance and falls around stumbling. Instead of admitting it, he goes full George Costanza and doubles down and manages to convince everyone at the dance with them. It might have been fun to be at a dance where everyone around knows the song and stumbles around together, but otherwise the song's just average. Crummett's voice is less engaging than Murray's, who pulls off the tone better, but the impact on catchiness is minimal and both songs receive a three. Murray's delivery is better as well and he earns a three in authenticity compared to Crummett's two. Artistic statement is identical in both songs, which receive a 2 there, since there's no difference in the presentation or the content. The song doesn't innovate much and ignores the advent of jazz, which could have been an avenue to update the song. Both songs are reasonably catchy and receive 3s there. In this one-on-one, Murray is the victor, but honestly, in a blind listen, it would be hard for most people to tell one version from the other, and the scores are nearly identical, save for Murray's more authentic delivery. Murray receives a 13 total, compared to Crummett's 12. Finally, and unfortunately, we have Burt Williams' last song that we'll be reviewing. 
Right away, William's voice is distinct and sincere sounding in a really engaging way. In this song, Williams is likely playing his sad character, which he does authentically enough to not be distracting, and earns a three. The song isn't tremendously innovative musically, but it does maintain better pacing than most comedic composition, and earns a three. In catchiness, it suffers the handicap of many stage performances, and receives a two for not translating to recorded format very engagingly. William's voice work is well done, but the last joke doesn't seem to land, as it doesn't seem to make sense no matter which way I try to parse it out. And the performance receives a three there. There is one interesting part at the end, where Williams notes that Prohibition has already started causing crime, and for giving us a look into the state of things in the past, earns a three in artistic statement for a total score of 14. That's all for today's episode, but we will be back tomorrow with an episode focusing on Al Jolson's work in 1922, which included a lot of hits. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law Review states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit, where we have a dedicated post for this episode, at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast on Spotify. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. <laughs>